Good morning. We've come in the Gospel of John on our way to resurrection morning, Easter Sunday morning. We find ourselves at at a critical juncture. Everything that Jesus has done, not just in the Gospel of John, but from eternity past, we go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 tells us that, that God, as a result of sin, made a guarantee that he would solve the problem of the human condition. And everything from Genesis 3 to the cross has been moving us inexorably to this moment in time. I've called this lesson history's ugliest moment. And I got to thinking this week what what others might consider to be history's ugliest moment. And so I did a little research and I found that uh, there's a number of lists out there produced by mostly university historians because they don't have much else to do. But the list varied in lots of different ways, mostly I suspect based on the personal biases and and opinions of the, the historian making the list. But by and large, the worst events in world history, um, number one, tended to be the Holocaust. Now, I get that. That makes sense. But as you work your way down the list, you see a real bias toward more recent history. I think that's just what we know better. Uh, The ancient world was filled with all kinds of horrible things. But they mention here the rape of Nanking, the Black Death. Now, that's, that, that, that should make the list. Um, 9-11 made some lists. The Crusades, uh, the genocide of Native Americans, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The list of, of history's worst moments, ugliest moments, uh, the list is probably up for grabs. Like I said, it, re- it reflects the particular... Uh, biases of, of the historian doing the, the, the writing. But, but I stand with this choice. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, we have something unprecedented in creation history. We have a perfect man, the first perfect man since the creation of Adam. And that didn't last a real long time. A perfect man who dies a death he didn't deserve. He was innocent, but yet executed as a criminal. God condemned as guilty by human beings who were already guilty and just piled more guilt on themselves as they approached this this event. There's nothing like this in all of human history, the cross of Jesus. But what I want to do this morning is I want to help you, I don't know, I want to help you see it maybe in a new light. Because the danger of a 
a biblical story, even one as truly significant, as deeply important as this one, it suffers from familiarity. I mean, if you've been in church all of your life, certainly if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, this story is familiar. You, you've been to church, you've heard it preached, you, you know what Easter season is all about. And yet, I think because it's so familiar, we find ourselves approaching it, reading through, just sort of blazing past when we read this section of Scripture, without pausing long enough to be astonished at what we're reading. God became human, lived a perfect sinless life, and died for sin in our place. Man, the minute we get used to that, the minute we get overly familiar with that, is the minute that we lose sight of exactly who we are in relationship to God. Now, let me answer, answer this question before, before we actually come to the text, because I, I've had this question before. Why a cross? Okay, I get it that, that Jesus had to die in place of us, but why a cross? I mean, couldn't he have just... Um, uh, you know, died a different kind of death maybe or died a natural death. I mean, death is the payment for sin. He had no sin to pay for. So even to die a natural death would be substitutionary. I mean, he would be paying a penalty that he didn't know. Why the cross? Well, let me see if I can explain this. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us uh, a glimpse at just how awe-inspiring the condescension of God to become man really is. I mean, in, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that, that Jesus had all the preexistent glory of God. He had all the divine dignity and, and privileges that, that went with being God. And yet he decided that he would m take on human flesh and solve the dilemma of the human condition, which is that we have to pay for our sin, but we can't ever pay for our sin. I mean, it's a debt that we owe that we, we could never fully pay on our own. Somebody has to swoop in and, and substitute themselves and make payment. But here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. He paints a picture of God coming to earth in Jesus Christ. And in this picture, if you can envision it, it's like a peak that starts here, and it, it doesn't just come down, it spirals, okay? It's like a downward spiral. He says that, that, that God became man, okay? That's an immeasurable step, down. God became man, that, that's huge. But he didn't just become man, he said that he became man in the likeness of a bondservant, that means, that word is a, is a polite translation of the word slave. He became human, but he became human, a human at the level of, of having no say over his own life. But not just that, it said he, became, he came, became human in the likeness of a bondservant, but not just that, an obedient bondservant. Human, servant, obedient servant. Obedient what? Obedient all the way to death. 
That is a life from start to finish of pure, unadulterated, uncompromised obedience all the way to death, but not just to death, but all the way to death on a cross. Now, let me explain this to you. We're going to talk about the crucifixion today because John doesn't give us a lot of detail. And he doesn't need to because his first readers, they didn't need explanation. They understood the crucifixion. They, they were painfully aware of the details of what that looked like. It was a common reality in the Roman world in which they lived. I want to give you some of those details so that we can be sure that we really understand what's taking place. But here's what you need to see. When you look at Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the second person of the Trinity, pre-existent glory, no beginning, no starting point, always, always and forever there, making himself human so that he could solve the dilemma of the human condition. In each, of that down, each level of that downward spiral, he goes all the way to crucifixion, to death, obedient death on a cross. For this reason, crucifixion, Cicero, a Roman politician, once made the comment in his writings that, that crucifixion was the foulest and cruelest of all human punishments. Jesus died on a cross because in this condescending descent from the throne room of grace, the furthest point from that throne is death on a cross. He covers every possible strata of human existence. The fact that God left a throne and came to a cross is the guarantee that you have that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter what brought you here this morning, you can receive the forgiveness that Christ accomplishes for us at the cross. There is nobody here who has had or ever will have an experience outside of the parameters that God experienced when he became man and died on the cross. So here we are. Let's go to the cross. John chapter 19 we finished last week with verse 16 that simply says, So Pilate then handed Jesus over to the Jewish leaders to be crucified. Well, here we go. Verse 17, the crucifixion. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, carrying his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Now Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, rather write that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for each soldier. 
and the tunic also, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, I, I, I don't know exactly, I mean, this is really a three-hour sermon. So, so don't come up to me and go, well, hey, you didn't talk about this. Yeah, there's a lot I'm not going to talk about, okay? But let's just see if we can walk through this as far as, as what the crucifixion was. In the ancient world, John just says the soldiers took him out and crucified him, but his readers would have instantly known all the detail. But in a, in a real brief description, here's, here's what happens. Um, a man typically would be flogged. We saw that with Jesus, beaten till he had lost a great deal of blood, sometimes almost within an inch of his life. He would then be given the cross beam of a, a, of a cross. Uh, typically, the, the straight beam of a cross stayed on the hill, the place of execution, and, and it had a notch in it. And there was a, a square place in the ground that, that was dug out and probably lined with rock. And, and the cross, the, the beam would, would go up and, and slip down into that opening. The cross beam was typically carried to the place of execution by the guilty uh, prisoner. It would then be fitted into the notch on the straight beam. And then his arms would be spread out and he would be secured to the cross, typically by, by nails. Now, not, not nails like you probably have in your garage, but nails more like uh, what you would see in the construction of a railroad track. We have it in our minds that, that the nails went into his palms, but, but the reality was to support the weight of a human body, typically the nails were, were put right here between the bones of the arm in the wrist because that would sustain the weight. So his arms would be stretched out and a nail would be driven through both wrists to secure the arms to the cross. Then the, the feet would be turned sideways. You can imagine how awkward a position this is. The feet would be turned sideways because a single nail would be driven through the heels of, of, the, of the prisoner into the wood. So this, this is the typical position on the cross, kind of turned at the waist. Now, there's loss of blood here. There's an incredible amount of pain. There's a shock that goes with that level of pain in the human body. But typically what killed a person on the cross was not any of those things. It was ultimately asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe. What happens is that as time passed, being on a cross like this, the weight of the body would sag down. And because the arms were secured to the cross beam, eventually both shoulders would dislocate. There's incredible pain with a dislocated shoulder, much less two. As the body sags down, the, the space available for the lungs to take on air is compacted. And so you can't, you can't breathe well. Pushing against the metal spike through the heels and pulling, on the, uh, pu pulling up from, on the spike through the wrist, uh, a, a prisoner would have to push himself up to free up enough lung space in his thoracic cavity to draw in air. 
It became increasingly difficult as the body weakened from loss of blood and exhaustion. It became more and more difficult to pull themselves up and breathe in air, much less take in air that would allow you to speak. We know Jesus spoke at least seven times from the cross because that's how many different uh, words are recorded from Jesus. So every time he spoke, there would have been this incredibly painful process of pulling up and taking in air so that you could speak. Now, later in the chapter, we're going to find this practice of uh, sometimes Roman crucifixion would take at least hours. It was never less than six hours. Sometimes it took days depending on the strength, the physical strength of the person being crucified. Roman soldiers would stay with the cross until their prisoners were dead. But occasionally, when it became necessary to speed up the process of death, they would take blunt clubs and they would come up to the cross and they would break the leg, the bones of the legs. Why would they do that? Because without the ability to push up against that spike through the heels, you couldn't take in air. And so not being able to push up, you would, you would die quicker from asphyxiation. All right, none of that is pretty. But you need to understand it because when Jesus is gonna speak from the cross, you need to understand how significant every word is because there was an almost superhuman effort required for him to speak to us in, in, in what we'll see uh, as this story unfolds. Now, it's hugely ironic, the mockery of taking the Lord of life and giving him a crossbeam to carry until he arrived at a place of death called the place of the skull. They crucified him there between two thieves. I think that was not accidental. It was intentional. It was a final indignity that Jesus would be executed between two, uh, two people who clearly were guilty of serious crimes. But I want you to see the, those two thieves on the cross become a microcosm for us of the decision that confronts every human being that's ever lived. You see, those two men, seeing Jesus, watching the events surrounding him, he certainly would have been the primary attraction that day. They would have been there dying almost unnoticed by the crowds. But they were aware of what was happening. One man cursed Jesus and went to his place for eternity. Another one cried out to Jesus for mercy and was promised grace and paradise. We don't have time to spend with the two thieves, but, but what you see here is a microcosm. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. There's no gray area when it comes to Jesus. You stand with him or you stand against him. Well, Jesus is on this middle cross. And we know that Pilate, uh, Pilate has been backed into a corner. Uh, if, he was a, if he was a man of more integrity, he would never have let a man that he knew to be innocent to be crucified, to be flogged and, and executed in this way. But, but Pilate is all about Pilate. But he takes one last opportunity to, uh, to just give it to those Jews that he hates so much. And so he, he commissions a sign to be posted on the cross that said, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. 
Not only did he post that, which was a, a very provocative message to the Jewish leadership, but it says that he put that sign on the cross and he put it in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. Now, this is fascinating. Aramaic would have been the language of the countryside. The average uh, Jewish peasant that lived in that part of the world would have spoken Aramaic on a day-to-day -day basis. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire. It was the language of all official documents. It was the language of all uh, public proclamations. Greek, Greek was the universal language of the day. It was the language of commerce. It was the language of, uh, of international trade. Pilate joins Caiaphas, the high priest, in this moment of being two pagans who didn't come to follow Jesus, who were used by God to announce truth. You remember Caiaphas, the high priest, was the one who said, it's better for one man to die on behalf of the people than for all the people to die. Well, he didn't even realize when he was saying that, that he was playing into precisely the idea that God was playing out in this drama of redemption. And here is, Caiaphas, uh, here is Pilate announcing that Jesus, the Nazarene, is the king of the Jews. It's fascinating. There are, there are dozens, dozens of Old Testament prophecies related to the cross. But, but let me read you one, because this one is, is one of the most fascinating to me. In Psalm in Psalm 76, verse 10, the psalmist, a thousand years before the cross, speaking about, uh, about the Messiah, he says, for the wrath of mankind shall praise you. You will encircle yourself with a remnant of wrath. There was actually a prophecy. I mean, even if I was trying to predict how this would unfold, one thing I think I wouldn't have thought of was to actually prophesy that the people who are behind the wrath, the people who are behind the murder of Jesus Christ would actually and unknowingly offer praise and acknowledge him for who he really is. Pilate joins Caiaphas as an unaware witness You've got these soldiers more interested in the spoils than in the Savior who are here. Uh, one of the perks of office for a Roman soldier on crucifixion duty was you got to keep the personal effects of the prisoner that you were, uh, that you were executing. In the case of Jesus, there was, uh, there was an outer garment, a cloak that was probably sewn together with, uh, in four sections, three seams, they decided to carefully cut it down the seams so that each one of them, each of the four soldiers, could take a, a piece of that cloak and, and have a, a piece of, of relatively nice material that they could use for something else. But then the inner tunic, the, the basic clothing that he wore, it was something special. It was seamless. It had been made in a way that really uh, was extraordinary for a Galilean peasant to wear. And they said, well, let's not tear this into pieces. Let's just, uh, we'll just roll dice for it. We'll just gamble to see who can win. What's interesting about the cross is every detail has been prophesied. And that's where John comes along and he says, uh, he quotes scripture saying, they divide my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothing. And he finishes in verse 24 by saying, therefore the soldiers did these things. They were acting, they thought at their own uh, at their own decision. They were doing these things because they were making decisions. But John, John is watching the cross 
probably with his jaw hanging down, not just at the horror of what he's seeing in the death of the man that he loves so much, but, he's, but, but clearly Jesus has taught his disciples over the previous three years of ministry about this day. Now, they didn't understand it all. They, didn't, they couldn't clue in that he was talking about dying. They certainly didn't understand that he was talking about dying on a cross. But as he taught them from the Old Testament, and as he pointed out these prophecies that would be related to the Messiah, John must have been standing there going, oh, my stars, look at that, look at that. He said that would happen, look at that. And he sees prophecy unfolding before his eyes. One of the reasons we need to study prophecy in our generation is because we've been led to the idea that it's so hard to understand that it will just leave it to somebody else. It's not that important. Listen, we need to study what the word of God has to say for our generation because watching it unfold, not from, biblical, not from newspaper exegesis, but watching scripture actually come to life gives you the confidence that none of this that happens around us from the cross to the end days to our generation, none of this is accidental. God is unfolding a drama that he has established in his mind already. So the soldiers play their part. Jesus is on the cross. Now, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but if I'm on the cross, I'm probably completely consumed with my terrible circumstance. And yet what we see from this man is even from the cross, we see compassion. Look at the next verses, beginning in verse 25. Now beside the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. John's probably mentioning four different women here. He mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus. He mentions Mary Magdalene. He mentions a third Mary by the name of uh, uh, Mary who was known as the mother of James and the wife of Cleopas or Clopas. And then there's another uh, woman, his mother's sister, who we know as uh, Salome, who was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That means she was John's mother. We have four women, three Marys and Salome, together at the foot of the cross with just one disciple, John. Everyone else has gone into hiding. If they're watching, they're watching from a distance in the shadows. But here, John is the only representative of that inner circle, is there with these four women at the foot of the cross. Jesus, remember how difficult it is for him to speak, to take in air and speak. He looks and sees who's standing nearby. And he pulls himself up to take air into his lungs. And he looks at Mary, his mother. As he glances to John, so she understands what he's thinking. He says, woman, behold your son pulls himself up and he takes in more air and he looks at John and he glances at Mary and he says behold your mother 
Now let me tell you what's happening here. Even on the cross, Jesus is still the good shepherd. He's giving John charge of his mother Mary. Now, why would he do that? Well, first of all, Joseph is not there. Joseph is not in the, in the narratives of Jesus Christ at any point after that scene when Jesus is in the temple at the age of 12. Scholars have traditionally believed that Joseph had died somewhere in the intervening years, and now Mary uh, is a relatively young widow, um, a relatively young. She's probably, she's probably 50, relatively young. She would have been John's aunt. But Jesus puts Mary into John's care and affirms that they both understand what he's saying. Well, didn't Jesus have other brothers, half-brothers, from the marriage of Joseph and Mary that came after him? Absolutely he did. But what you need to understand is, at this point in time, none of those brothers are yet believers. They will come to believe, but they are not there yet. And Jesus is carefully putting Mary into John's care. But one thing that bothers us sometimes is he calls her woman. Um, we hear disrespect in that, but I, I want to explain what's happening. Jesus is not disrespecting his mother, but you need to understand at this moment in time, the parental bond of mother and child is, is, is pulling away and Jesus is treating her more as someone that he cares for deeply and he's responsible for, but he's, but there's a distance between mother and son at the cross. Let me explain why. One of the theological errors that has captured the Western church for the better part of 2,000 years is we have taken our deep respect for Mary. And don't, don't hear me improperly here. I have deep respect for Mary. She's one of my favorite characters. I mean, imagine we believe that every baby is given to a mother and a father with the charge of being responsible for the stewardship of that young life. Can you imagine this baby of all babies being given to Mary because God looked down and saw in her a faithfulness, a quiet confidence in the Spirit of God, a, a relationship that she could be trusted with the Son of God to raise him up in the story of redemption. I have deep respect for Mary, but here's what I, here's what I, I don't have. I don't have belief in the idea that Mary is somehow in a privileged place in heaven as the queen of heaven, and we don't pray to her asking her to accomplish things for us. I read in a, a theology book one time that Mary is held in some theological traditions as, and this is a word I've never been able to get out of my head, she is held to be co-redemptrix. Let me tell you something right now. I love Mary. She has a special place in the story of Jesus, but she had nothing to do with my redemption. Mary is at the foot of the cross, not as the queen of heaven, not as the mother of God. She is at the foot of the cross as a sinner who needs the sacrifice to be secured so that she can be washed clean of her sins. And in this moment, he's pushing her away from the cross. There is no shared credit here. There is no joint effort here. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. There's incredible compassion in these moments. 
But here's the completion of the, uh, of the event. Look at, look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. Now that's an interesting verse. What it tells us is that even in the moment of the cross, Jesus is alert. He's, he's, he's got clarity about what's happening and he's watching the prophecies tick off one at a time. He's seeing exactly what he knew would take place in, in the prophecies related to this moment. He's been watching them and he says, everything has already been accomplished, but in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, see, there's at least one more. He said, I'm thirsty. Now, I don't have time to give you all kinds of prophecies, but let me write these down. Let me allow you to write these down if you'd like them so that you can look them up later. The precise unfolding of prophecies related to the cross includes several. Here's just a few. Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, verses 1, 8, 16, and 18. But here, now we go to Psalm 69, verse 21, which is a prophecy that in this moment, he will be... Uh, marked by thirst. Even this detail has been woven into the tapestry of the story. And Jesus says, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus had turned down wine because he, he didn't want to be sedated. Yes, earlier in the night, one of the other gospels tells us that there was a kind of wine that had a sedative added to it that as a, just a, a, a mark of mercy was sometimes given to a man about to be executed, especially if the flogging had been real severe. You see, they needed to numb the pain so that he could function long enough to carry the cross to the place of execution. Jesus was offered that wine earlier in, in the day that had the sedative or the painkiller in the wine. Jesus had turned it down. It was necessary in this downward spiral that Jesus experienced the full and un, uh, uncompromised experience uh, of human death on the cross. And so he, he refused anything that would blunt that feeling in his, in his body. But here, this is different. I said that the soldiers would be with the cross until their charges were pronounced dead. They had probably a, a container of of cheap wine, really, it, it, it may not even have been much like wine. It was probably kind of uh, vinegar and water. It was mostly designed to just rehydrate and quench their thirst. It was for the soldiers. Jesus pulls himself up and takes in breath to say, I'm thirsty. Now, why would he do that? Because we don't know all the details of how the morning is unfolded, but I doubt that he's had anything to drink in hours. He's in the sun in the heat of midday. He's lost a tremendous amount of blood. He is massively dehydrated. His lips are probably so parched that he can't, and his tongue so swollen that he's having trouble forming words. But you see, he's got one more thing to say. He's taking care of business. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He said, behold your son, behold your mother. Here he says, I'm thirsty. They, put, they take a sponge and dip it in this vinegar water mixture and they put it on a hyssop branch and they reach it up to him and they dab it. He probably opens his mouth enough that it touches his tongue, it touches his lips, just enough so that he can, so he can, he can, he can form some words. 
one more time. And then he says this. He says in Greek, tetelestai. Now, I love that this is one word because it's translated in English this way. It is finished. Now, I want you to understand what's finished. He has been observing the event through the night, all through the day. He's been watching one prophecy after another played out. He knows that this is precisely the way the Father meant for it to happen. He's been seeing prophecy, and he realizes that with the request for uh, something to slake his thirst, he has now satisfied the last of the prophetic uh, descriptions of this event. The only thing remaining is for the actual death of the sacrifice. And he pulls himself up and he says, it is finished. But he doesn't say it like an, uh, an, uh, an act of resignation. It's not like, oh, it's finished. No, he takes the liquid so that he can form the words and he pulls himself up and he says, it is finished. What's finished? What's finished is everything that started in Genesis chapter three when God said, I will solve the dilemma of the human condition. I will see that there's a way back into relationship with me. I will provide a way for sins to be forgiven, for grace to be extended, for mercy to be received. Jesus was looking at the prophecies. He was watching everything that he had come to earth to do. And he was here on the cross and he looked around and he considered his entire life, his entire eternity, and he said, it's done, it's finished, it's completed. I've done exactly what I set out to do. There is a sacrifice and it's done. And look what it says here. Don't miss this. It says, verse 30, therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, tetelestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the Greek, it's very unmistakable. Jesus did not die in the sense that his spirit was taken from him, he released his spirit. You see what he's saying is, it is finished. Everything has been done. Everything necessary to provide a way of salvation, to produce forgiveness, it's all in place. And in that moment, he announces it's finished and he dismissed his spirit because he was finished. Don't you ever Look at Jesus Christ on the cross and call him a victim. He was in charge of this series of events every single step along the way. And when he had completed what he set out to do, he announced the completion and he dismissed himself. Verse 31, now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, 
The Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. This makes me so angry. You see, it was against Jewish law for a body to remain unburied on the Sabbath. So if you die the day before the Sabbath begins at the evening sunset, the body had to be buried before the Sabbath or it would create a defiling effect on on the people that had to deal with the body. This was not just a Sabbath coming up. This was the Passover. This was a high holy day. And so these god-awful, horrible, quote, spiritual leaders. They go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, listen, clock's ticking. We got, we got places to go. We got people to see. We, we, we've got a Passover to, to pull off. So here's what we need you to do. In rare cases, I mentioned that they would break the legs of people on the cross because it would, it would speed up the death process. They said, we've got some religious stuff happening as soon as the sun goes down, and we got to get home and get the meals ready and get the house ready, and we got people coming over. So uh, we, we need you to, to move this along. We need you to break those legs so that we can get these people down and, and get them buried and get on with business. I mean, it just infuriates me, this, this attention to ritual detail with, with no self-awareness whatsoever that they are murderers of an innocent man, not to mention God himself. I mean, they're just piling guilt on top of themselves with this attitude. We, we want you to we want you to, to take these bodies down and so break their legs and let's get on with things. What kind of unfeeling jerk do you have to have, do you have to be to have this sort of attitude towards somebody that is, that is dying? I mean, and this wasn't, don't, don't misunderstand. This was not an act of mercy. Hey, let's break their legs so that we can, so that we can you know, help them die faster and get them out of this suffering. No, this was a real matter of fact. This was a time problem. We had a chronology problem. We got places to go. And their attitude was, these are throwaways anyway. Two throwaways and one problem that we finally solved. Let's just wrap this up and get on with it. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man Pilate or whoever's in charge gives permission to go ahead with the, with the leg breaking. They broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. Soldiers probably started from the outside and moved towards the center. Yet one, uh, but when they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. See, they were surprised that he was already dead because crucifixion usually didn't bring death that quickly. But remember, Jesus didn't run out of life He laid down his life. He gave up his spirit. He determined the timing of all of this. Yet one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now, that's interesting. I I don't know quite how to explain that. There's a lot of people who try and and explain it. I heard one very extensive 
medical journal article on the crucifixion. I read it, and, and it argued that Jesus died of a ruptured heart. Maybe there's a cardiologist here who can help me. But, but they said when the heart ruptures, that when, when the spear pierced the, the, the torso, that not only blood, but the fluid around the heart sac would have, would have passed out as well and been, been, been seen as, as water as well as blood. Here's what I think about that. Jesus didn't die of a ruptured heart. Jesus died because he dismissed his spirit. There is no, there is no physiological explanation for this that, 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 we, that we need to hang our hats on. All I know is that when John, who's standing there watching, remember John, jaw hanging down, he's watching prophecy, right and left, everything about it. And he sees what he describes as water and blood flowing from the body after it's pierced with a spear. John's mind probably went to the temple. But you see, at the temple, at the place of sacrifice, the sinner who, who needed forgiveness would bring his sacrifice and he would present it and it would be placed on the altar. And he would step back and the priest on the other side who was responsible to secure the sacrifice the proper way so that the priest could extend forgiveness to the sinner. Between the priest and the sinner, there was the sacrifice where the animal, the blood of the animal would, would, would have poured down off of, the, off of the altar. And behind the altar was what, what were two things, a brazier, which is where the fire was kept for the sacrifice. And then there was a laver or a, a, a holder for water. And I think as John is just in full-fledged revelation mode, I mean, he is just seeing the hand of God in every detail. I think he saw what appeared to be water and blood flowing from this body. And in his mind, he realized he's the sinner standing at the foot of the altar. And there is between him and forgiveness, the water and the blood. And in his mind, as Jesus gives up his spirit, he sees the sacrifice completed. And he feels the high priest saying, go, your sins are washed clean. That's what he saw at the foot of the cross. And he said, he who has seen, this is his confession. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things took place so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look at him whom they pierced. Even as they stabbed the body with a spear. John says, there it is. There's another one. Nothing accidental happened on the cross. He was not a victim. And let me say this, from this moment forward, after the spear, there will not be any hands except loving hands who will ever touch that body again. Verse 38, the consecration. Now, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, 
requested of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred litres weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Secret disciples, two of them, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, meaning that he was one of the religious leaders. We don't know his story. We know that he was wealthy. He was recognized as a man of some influence in the city. Somewhere along the way, he crossed paths with Jesus and became a follower, but a secret follower. There was another one there by the name of Nicodemus. Now, we do know how Nicodemus and Jesus met because we go all the way back to John chapter 3. Nicodemus, so that others wouldn't know he was talking to Jesus, but he had interest. He makes an appointment and he comes to see Jesus at night. And Jesus introduces him to the concept of being born again or, or being made a new creation. Somewhere along the way, they both become followers of Jesus. They're secret followers. They probably had convinced themselves that, that we can actually do more good to help Jesus from inside the, the system than from outside. It wouldn't do any good for us to, to, to lose our influence, to be, to be cast out of positions of power. So they were followers of Jesus, but secret until now. And what happened? The cross happened. Because you see, at the cross, everything changed. It was not possible to be a secret follower of Jesus Joseph goes to Pilate. Now, not just anybody would have had access to Pilate. I mean, certainly not any of the inner circle of the 11 disciples. Joseph is a man of some influence and wealth. He goes to Pilate and requests the body. Pilate, probably already moving on, has said, yeah, wh whatever. Just, I don't want to mess with it. Take, take the body. Joseph takes the body down. Nicodemus comes along. Nicodemus was reputed to be one of the three wealthiest men in Jerusalem. It says that he comes along with spices. Now, we don't have to get into the details, but, the, but apparently the words here describe enough burial spices that would have been extraordinary for a normal burial. Uh, the implication is that, that using his great wealth, Nicodemus arrives with enough spice to bury a king. In his mind, this is a royal burial. So you have these two formerly secret disciples, men of some influence in the city, who now have joined with these hapless women at the foot of the cross with John and, and anybody else who's maybe come out of the shadows, and they take down the body of Jesus. Now, they're touching a dead body. Wait a minute, I thought that was about religious defilement. I thought the Passover was coming up. But here's the thing. Part of moving from a dead religious system into a live relationship with God through Jesus Christ is all of a sudden they weren't concerned about those rules and regulations. They had a king who had changed their lives and they were here to minister to him. They took that body down. It would have been hurried because they had to be finished before, uh, before the sun went down, but they would have washed that body carefully. The blood, they would have... They, they would have pieced the, the torn skin back together as best they could. They would have covered him with spices and then wrapped him in linen. 
all done with incredible care. This was not a professional who's just moving a body through the process. There was, there was certainly weeping as they put everything they had into preparing this body, this man that had, that had changed them so much. And they took him to a nearby tomb, a tomb that had never been used before. And they put the body there and a stone was rolled over and closed him in. And so begins the longest, darkest waiting period ever for some. But let's think about, let's think about who, what happened that evening in Jerusalem. I mean, Pilate probably went home thinking that this Jesus issue was behind him. He probably had supper with his wife and told her about the day's events. And in his mind, it was just another, uh, another crazy day as governor of Judea. Annas and Caiaphas, a high priest and a former high priest, probably had Passovers to, Passover feast to preside at. They each went their own ways and and without giving what they had done that day a second thought, they, they piously went through all the motions so that they could be good with God. Peter. Peter is somewhere weeping his eyes out all by himself. Judas, Judas, we don't know. Judas is forgotten already, his body somewhere. John has taken Mary to his home and is trying to comfort his new mother. King Herod and his men, they've mocked Jesus and they've moved on to a new distraction. There was a Roman soldier who was showing off his new robe to his wife. probably trying to wash the blood of the Son of God off of his spear. I wonder if he was pondering that this crucifixion felt differently than the others that he's been a part of. I wonder about Mary, Mary of Bethany, the sister of Lazarus. I wonder about her. You see, she had been there when her brother was called out of a grave by Jesus. Lazarus, come out! I wonder if while everybody else was in despair, I wonder if Mary had found a quiet place by herself where she began to think, I wonder if this story's not quite finished. I wonder if there's more to this than we realize. The reality is, for most of the people that day, they'd stopped by on the road, in or out of the city, and they'd seen the, the spectacle of crucifixion. It was a pretty common sight. They'd seen the sign, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. They've, they've even pondered what that meant. But I suspect for 99.9% .9 of the people in Jerusalem that day, they left that day thinking that this was just an ordinary crucifixion by ordinary Romans on an ordinary day with an ordinary criminal. And they went on about their business. Here's what I want to suggest to you today. 
2,000 years later, the most dangerous thing you can do is make your way to the cross, watch the story unfold, and then shrug your shoulders because you've heard it before and turn and go on about your business. See, everything, everything in creation changed in that moment. And when we treat it like it's just another vacation Bible school story that we heard as a kid, we've heard it and, you know, it's good that the preacher believes it and it's nice that he's moved by it, but, but you know, I've got, I've got other things to think about. I've got other priorities that I have to get onto. I, I've got a busy life and I, I need to get back to it. And I'm here to say that there's nothing, nothing, nothing in your busy life that compares to the moment that you decide how to respond to the cross. Do you say, wow, that's a shame. Tough story. I would hate for that to be me. It was you. And it was me. Because we have, by our sin, offended an infinite God to an infinite degree. God could have taken it upon himself to say, well, this is an experiment that went bad. And he could have wiped out everything. So we did that one time in a flood. Yeah. But he didn't wipe out everything. He pulled a remnant out because he said, I'm not through with this creation that I made in my image. Let me ask you this question today. Are you an a follower of Jesus Christ or just an observer of Jesus Christ? Are you a lover of the things of God or do you just have a casual interest in whatever seems attractive to you? Are you on rock solid ground when the time comes for you to stand before God and be exposed as a follower or as an opponent? Are you crowning him king or are you yelling crucify him? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not doing either one. I'm neutral. I'm sorry, no neutral ground in this one. You will hear the words crucify him haunt you for your eternity separated from him. Or 
you will sing again and again and again every day for eternity. Crown him with many crowns. Where are you? Who are you? The cross was about you. Will you, like so many others, go on about your business? Or will you make your way to kneel before a throne and say, here's my life, jumbled mess that it is. I give it to you so that you can make me a brand new creation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, man, there could not be a better time for you to come to him. You're at the foot of the cross right now, even if you don't realize it. Are you going to turn and walk away? Or are you going to kneel before your king? Oh, that kneeling business? You are going to kneel. The invitation is for you to kneel voluntarily. But if you say no to that, there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to kneel. Wouldn't you rather kneel as a lover who receives grace? That's a lot better than kneeling as a conquered enemy who's submitting to an enemy king. Come visit with one of our pastors. Let us introduce you to Jesus Christ. Come kneel at this altar and make things right. Maybe you follow, you, you, you believe Jesus, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've got a thousand and one distractions. It's time to, to make him front and center again in your, in your day, in your world. Come and refresh your relationship with him. Just bow before his throne. He's not gonna throw rocks at you. He's not gonna judge you. He's gonna wrap you up in his arms like a good father does. Maybe you need to join a church. It's dangerous in this world to be in between families, to have no real accountability. You, you need to be sold out to a people. People of Evergreen would love to have you come stand shoulder to shoulder with us. Come talk to one of our pastors. We'll share with you how you can come into this fellowship, how you can be a part of who we are. Listen, there's a day coming and it's not that far away where you are not going to want to be a Christian in this generation out there on your own. You are going to want to be in the family, the community of faith, because we're going to walk together through some really difficult days. Come be a part of the family. Join us. Meet Jesus. Make things right before the throne. Be a part of this church. Whatever you need to do, today's the day. Today is the day.
He said, I need to think about it. You've been thinking about it enough. Today's the day. Come visit with one of our pastors. We'll pray with you. We'll talk to you. We'll help you with whatever you need. Today is the day. Father, thank you so much. Your word is powerful. Lord, we pray that in this moment, we will not be a people who who hear the unfolding drama of the cross only to turn and walk away to do a hundred other things that are less important. Lord, draw us by your Spirit. Lead us to a place where nothing can be more important to us than the one thing in our life that we will have for all of eternity. Forgive us for being distracted by temporary shiny things. Renew our vision of the God-man who died on a cross in our place so that we might experience the presence of God for all of eternity. Make yourself known here. Lord, this is our prayer. In the name of our crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray it. Amen.